Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In today's episode, the second in our three-part series looking at what consulting leaders like you need to be focusing on to achieve post-lockdown success, Derry Hughes, founder of Honeycomb PS, walks you through the exact frameworks that he uses with his clients to create highly scalable, flexible and controllable operations functions. As Derry explains in today's episode, when it comes to operations, there's two key areas that you need to be focusing on, flexibility and control. Flexibility on cost to respond to the changing needs of your clients and capture those opportunities as they present themselves and control to manage the risks to your business. Things like cash flow, people, and ultimately your client management. Over the course of this session, Derry walks you through a whole host of things that will help you improve your operations, including how to identify the critical capabilities that you need for the new world, the proven ways to build both flexibility and control into your operating model, and the tools that you can use and deploy quickly at a low cost to deliver immediate impacts in your operations. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and that Derry's advice will help you to develop your own effective operation strategy as life returns back to normal. If you missed the first part of this series, then go back to the previous episode where you can catch Rob Garner talking about how to develop an effective value proposition. 
And if you want to learn about the third pillar marketing, that's the next session. So without further ado, please enjoy the second in our three-part series on how to succeed as we come out of lockdown. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining this afternoon. Um, I think we've got most people here now, so we're going to make a start. This is the second of our three-part series on post-lockdown success for consulting firms. So this is all about building flexibility and control in your consulting firm operations. Uh, my name is Derry Hughes from Honeycomb, and uh, we're doing this in conjunction with Rob Garner from Garwood Solutions and Nixon up from Create Engage. For those of you that weren't able to join last week, Rob went through refreshing the, the VNP and your value proposition and that recording is available. So please do let us know if you'd like to see that. And next week, Nick will be, next Thursday, sorry, Nick will be talking about generating ROI from your marketing activities. So I'm going to dive in and just introduce myself for those that don't know me. And then I'm going to ask Nick and Rob to introduce themselves as well. And then we'll get into the, the meat of this afternoon's webinar. My name is Derry Hughes. I'm the founder of Honeycomb PS. Honeycomb help leaders of consulting firms. So we exclusively work with consulting firms with a real focus on operational capabilities. So we do that through operations planning, training and coaching services, and also outsourced operations services. So running finance functions, HR or office management. I'm also co-founder of Explore Consulting, which is a new tech-enabled recruitment proposition for consulting firms that we're going to be launching in September. Very excited about that. Prior to Honeycomb, I was the Chief Finance and Operations Officer of Credo Business Consulting, which we grew to about 15 million of turnover and then sold to Teneo in 2017. And my role there was to build up and then run all of the operations in the back office to, to support the partners. And prior to that, I was a strategy consultant. So I started my career at Bain Company, was there for many years, and then ran my own consulting practice focused on uh, deal environments. Um, so that, that's me, and uh, that, that's my focus on operations for consulting firms. I'm just going to ask uh, Nick and then Rob to introduce themselves as well. So you, uh, you know all of us and they'll be taking part in the panel later on. Thanks a lot, Derry. Uh, so thanks for the intro. Um, my name is Nick Sinnott. I run the digital marketing agency Create Engage. We're a specialist digital marketing agency focused on the consulting industry. Much like Derry, we work exclusively with the consulting industry to help firms like yourselves, boutique consulting firms, generate return on investment through effective digital marketing, because ultimately that's the number one goal that you're trying to achieve through your marketing. Background wise, like Derry, started out in consulting, very much on the consulting side. So saw firsthand the challenges that consultants had around marketing, around business development, and really brought that in to our business as we've grown. Not only do we work with clients to help them with their marketing, but we, we practice what we preach. So we run and I host uh, the leading podcast for the UK consulting industry, which is called Climbing Consulting. Rob has been a, a former guest of the show, and actually we are going to be putting out the whole series that you're now watching, so this is two and three, through the podcast as well. And like Derry says, I'll be hosting the third session in the series, which is on marketing on Thursday this week, and I'll be here for the whole session and for the Q&A today as well. Great. Thank you, Nick. And Rob, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, of course. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Jerry. So Rob Garner, for those that don't know me, I'm one of the two founders and four directors at Garwood Solutions. So Garwood is a performance improvement for professional services. So like Nick and Derry, we're very focused on the consulting industries. The founders and directors are all kind of ex-executives from within the sector. So for myself, I was formerly the uh, chief exec of a listed uh, education software and services business. So that was the tribal group. You know, prior to that, I was in the NHS and was a trust chief exec of two trusts. 
and earlier in my career cut my teeth at KPMG where I ultimately ended up as a partner and then ran my own consulting business of Ale Consulting for a number of years along the way. So just to kind of reiterate, I mean, so Garwood is really much a, a professional services performance improvement. We focus around kind of four key areas. We focus around governance. We focus around sort of funding and M&A activity. We focus around kind of operations, but actually probably much more at the target operating model. And lastly, we, we have a very strong focus on the kind of platforms and systems that kind of enable professional services firms. I'll stop at that point and hand back Derry. Fantastic, Rob. Thank you very much. So just one note before we kind of move on. I'm sure you're all used to doing Zoom calls now, but if you do have questions, please use the Q&A function. And then I'm going to be talking for about half an hour or so. I've uh, got quite a lot of rich content to go through. And then we'll have time for about 20 minutes of Q&A at the end of the session. So if you do have questions as we're going through, please put them in the Q&A facility on Zoom and uh, we'll, we'll address them at the end. First of all, let's just make sure that you're all in the right place. So who is this webinar for? Our, our focus, as we said, is owners and leaders of consulting firms. And particularly if you are wrestling at the moment with how to set up your operations to be successful post-lockdown. I'm specifically going to cover three questions. So you may be asking yourself, what are the capabilities that I need in the new world? And we're going to talk about a methodology to identify what those capabilities are. How can you build in flexibility and control to your operating model and flexibility and control of the two keywords I'm going to be talking about as we navigate the future that is coming up? And then finally, I'm going to give a couple of examples of specific digital tools that you can deploy so that you're getting something really practical and, uh, and implementable straight out of this. So hopefully you're all in the right place. I'm going to talk first about the broader context for your business. And when we've been talking to clients over the last few months about how to think about the lockdown, the impact on their business and how they should move through it. I've been talking about a three-phase process. So first of all, it's stabilize, then recover, and then grow. And the characteristics of those different phases impacts your team, your revenue, your costs, and your cash differently. So for stabilize, for example, your team have probably been feeling pretty anxious. Maybe some of them are on furlough. They're not sure whether the business is going to recover, whether their jobs are going to be there when they come off furlough and, and the broader economy and their concerns about their health. Most of you will have seen some kind of revenue dip. I know some firms have, uh, have actually seen revenue increase recently, uh, but most of you have seen some kind of revenue dip and your focus has been to stabilize that revenue and, and get your business back on a secure footing. Your costs probably will have come down, whether that's through the furlough scheme or just cutting other, other discretionary spend. And your cash may well have gone up. So there have been all kinds of good funding options out there, whether that's a bounce back loan or the or a Seabills loan to actually get some cash in the bank, but you've, you've broadly been in survival mode. We're moving now into a recover phase where your team are probably getting more hopeful and you can start to talk to them about the future again. Your revenue hopefully is starting to go up, and if not, that's certainly the goal to recover back to where you were so you can then build past that. In relation to that, your costs will start to go up again, um, particularly if you've been relying on the furlough scheme and maybe you need to start spending again as you start looking forwards. And because of that, your cash balance will probably come down in the, in the short term. And then finally, it's grow. And the goal is to get into a growth phase and be properly prepared so that your team are excited, they're energized, they've got new things to go after. As Rob talked about last week, a refreshed value proposition for new markets and new segments. Hopefully your revenue's going up, your costs will go up alongside that, but hopefully not as much. And then your cash will go up as well. And this is all about surging ahead. Most of you are probably somewhere between stabilize and recover at the moment and starting to think about growth. And 
this is where we want to be forward-looking in, uh, in the way that we think about things. So what is that future going to look like? Well, the only real thing that we know for sure is it's going to be really uncertain. Rishi Sunak here saying we're at a time of unprecedented economic uncertainty. Whether that's the way that we emerge from lockdown, the likelihood of mass redundancies, I saw in the news today, there's 612,000 jobs have already been lost, even though the furlough scheme's still running. There's Brexit, remember that, no one's really talking about it at the moment, but the impact of Brexit will come back. There's civil unrest on the streets, and uh, who knows what, what kind of impact that will have. So the thing that you can be certain about is there is uncertainty, and more so than ever, more so than any of us have really lived through in recent times. So what do you need to do to prepare for that? There are two key things in my book, flexibility and control. So the flexibility is to allow you to respond to opportunities, to see how the market is moving and to quickly address your client needs in a way that they weren't addressed before or needs that didn't even exist before. But also the flexibility in your cost base to protect your cash flow and make sure that as the months unwind and as we go through the next 12 to 18 months that you're, you're not burning through your cash faster than is necessary. And in order to understand how to do that, you need control. So you need real clarity on the metrics that matter to your business and make sure that you're measuring those with the correct frequency, with the right accuracy and getting the information in front of people at a time that they need it to make decisions. And those decisions matter more than ever as well. The margins for error are much thinner than they've, they've been previously when we're navigating quickly and rapidly through the turbulence that's coming. So great buzzwords, flexibility and control. Fantastic. It, it sounds, sounds lovely. But what do you actually mean? What are the capabilities that you need to think about? So First of all, I'm going to just take a step back and, and work through the process of how you identify capabilities that might matter for your business. And then we'll talk about some of the specific processes where you might apply control and you might apply flexibility. So to define the capabilities that matter most, I think of it as a four-step process. So first of all, you go right back to the top and look at the ambition you had for your business. When, when your business was first set up and you were thinking about you're going to start a consulting firm, you will have had an ambition, maybe you wrote it down, maybe you didn't, but that ambition is what really informs your strategy. And it's a sensible thing right now to think about, has that changed? Does that have to change in, in the new world? Whether your ambition has changed or not, you should then think about your commercial strategy and value propositions. Rob covered that in detail last week. I'm not going to go into it more. But the implication of any changes to your strategy and your value propositions are that there will be critical capabilities that matter now that might not have mattered before or the ones that did matter might have changed in importance and those capabilities are the things that enable you to execute your strategy and then the fourth step once you've identified those capabilities is to think about how to increase flexibility and control when we think about capabilities for a consulting firm i have a a framework that i use that i call the key it's got four parts to it so one is a revenue flywheel this is a set of processes that enable you to systematically and predictably grow your top line there's operations management and there's a lot of things that can fall under that but i i think of the three most important buckets the, the processes for how you manage your talent so that's your recruitment processes that's how you onboard people how you develop them you promote them your review processes also disciplinary processes how you performance manage etc that's how you manage your cash fairly self-explanatory but absolutely critical and that's how you manage your risks. And risks tend to be somewhat specific to the, the type of business that you're operating, but it's still absolutely critical that you have a handle on your risks. Then 
underneath all of that is your measurement approach and the metrics and KPIs that you use and the processes that enable you to monitor those. And then finally, there's your, your technology platform, your ops tech that enables these processes to run efficiently and effectively and where you focus with that. I'm just going to talk about the revenue flywheel in a little bit more detail because that's quite an important part of this puzzle in there. And it's something that people don't always get right. So to my mind, there was four parts to this. So first of all, there's the set of processes that enable you to win work predictably. So how do you attract the attention of the, the clients that you care about? How do you engage with them, understand their needs, scope out work appropriately, set pricing so that it's value for you and value for them, and ultimately close and win the work. Once you've done that, you need to be resourcing that work up, allocating the right people, the right capabilities, measuring how much time they're spending, adjusting that as you go so that you can deliver. And delivering value is obviously absolutely critical and very specific to the type of consulting that you do. So the set of processes behind this might be completely different for your firm. Um, here's just an example of a fairly standard kind of strategy consulting model of gathering some information, analyzing it, developing a recommendation, and then compelling them to action. The fourth step is the one that often gets missed, and that is building IP. So on the back of your delivery, on the back of the value that you've delivered, it's really important to capture the learnings from that, catalog them in, a, in whatever tool that you're using to catalog your IP, enhance it so that it can then be communicated externally and then a set of processes to externalize it. And that's where the flywheel comes in because then you can use that IP to start to win more work and attract attention again. And if you can get all of those processes working smoothly, you get a really powerful effect where you can predict and reliably grow your top line. So that's what I mean by a revenue flywheel. If we bring all of that together, we get the picture on the left of this, this slide with the revenue flywheel, operations management, talent, cash and risks, metrics and KPIs and the ops tech. So let's think about which parts of that are the priorities for controlling as we go through the next few months. First of all, the win-work process is absolutely critical for control. I'm not going to talk about them anymore today because that's uh, the focus of Nick's um, webinar on Thursday that I hope you'll all join. And Nick's entire business is about um, driving marketing and winning work for consulting firms. So I'm going to leave that to him on Thursday. The bits I do want to talk about. So first of all, managing cash. Obviously, cash is absolutely critical. And even if you've borrowed money cheaply right now and your cash balances are quite strong, it's going to be really important to stay on top of that. A whole bunch of different things that could be behind that. I'm just going to talk about scenario forecasting as, uh, as one tool that's, um, that's really powerful and important right now. Managing risks. Again, there will be significant risks facing your business. And um, I'm going to talk about a way that you can monitor those more tightly and more clearly than you might have done in the past. And then finally, metrics and KPIs and making sure those are fit for purpose. So I'm just going to go into each of those in a little bit more detail now. So first of all, of managing cash. I talked about scenario forecasting and I also said I was going to talk about some digital tools that you can implement right now. And the first of those is a tool called Float, which some of you may be using. If you're not, it's a really powerful, simple tool that sits on top of your finance system. So it integrates nicely with Xero, with QuickBooks, etc. And it enables you to, to semi-automate your cash forecasting. You still need to adjust variables to, to do it. The thing that I really like about Float versus others is the fact that it has really good scenario modeling capabilities in it. So that allows you to play around with different scenarios. So you could input variables such as, should we hire a person in this area? Should we invest marketing spend here? Should we renew the sponsorship that we had last year? 
or some of you may be facing really difficult decisions about letting people go and you want to know what the redundancy cost implications might be and, and when the cost will come out of your P&L. Those scenarios in Float are just really easy to play around with. And the reason I like Float in particular is because it enables you to spend more time thinking about those decisions rather than trying to assemble data from multiple different sources, multiple versions of spreadsheets that may well just have errors. In. So you can plug in things like, will I get paid by this client on time or should I push back my expected payment date by two weeks because they're struggling? Things like that. So scenario forecasting, I think is really important at the moment, particularly when it comes to cash flow, particularly to help you make the decisions that you need. And I would use Float as a tool for that. In terms of managing risks. So the thing I wanted to pick up on managing risks is the types of questions a board might ask. So most of you ideally would have a board. A lot of you won't have a formal board in place. And you may be thinking now is not the time for me to try and figure out how to put a board in place. I would argue that it is, but that's a separate thing. The point I want to make today is even if you don't have a board, you can still ask the types of questions that a board would ask, and they can still be really insightful for your business in terms of how you manage risks. So this is about getting your senior team together at an appropriate frequency for your business to in a structured and semi-formal way, ask questions like, what is actually going on in the broader economy? Let's not just take anecdotes and the one news article we read on the way in this morning or the story we talked about with our other halves last night. Let's actually do this in a systematic way. Look at the economy, monitor metrics there. Look at what's going on in our specific markets. What's going on with our specific clients? Are they likely to have problems paying us or renewing a piece of work? Asking those questions Related to that then is, and we mentioned this briefly last week in the Q&A, if you've agreed a set of priorities of things that you're going to change and you're working through the first couple of those and you've got a longer list of things that you think might be useful, using a board type cadence to figure out how often you should review those and how you should review those is also a powerful tool. And you don't necessarily need an external board to do that. The final piece is about identifying risks that you're facing that you may not have thought of. And this is harder to do objectively if you're just using your internal team um, but it's still it's still possible to do if you uh, if you ask the right questions this is things like what are we hearing in the market that might mean a certain client is going to struggle what funding program that our clients are reliant on might uh, might cause problems etc so an experienced external board can can bring that insight and bring those opportunities to you but you can still ask those questions internally as well so in terms of managing risks, I would make sure that you're really actively managing risks and having a structured conversation about them now in a way that you may not have been doing in the past. And finally, metrics and KPIs. So you will hopefully be monitoring a whole bunch of metrics for your business, whether that's your cash outlook or the happiness of your team, whether you've got employees that are at risk, levels of client advocacy, how satisfied are they and delighted are they with the work that you're doing for them, your project profitability, whether that's for your individual projects and at what point in the, in the life cycle that you're tracking that, all of your growth metrics around your, your funnels and your conversion activity and your pipeline. I'm not going to go into what the right set of metrics are today. The points I want to make are if you have changed your ambition or your strategy or you've shifted your focus, make sure that the KPIs you're monitoring are appropriate for that new world. Don't just monitor the same ones you've always been monitoring because you may well end up missing things. And the critical thing with designing metrics and KPIs is that they are aligned to the set of things that you want to do to achieve your ambition. And the other point is when you're designing KPIs, make sure that they're flexible and scalable. So if you set yourself targets, so if you set a 2020 budget 
that's gone out of the window now. And trying to just track back to that budget all through the rest of the year is not going to be helpful. So if you've got fixed targets for each of your metrics, you're going to need to adjust those. And I would say take the opportunity to look at those metrics and, and think about them in a more scalable way, whether that's looking at a ratio of revenue to costs or looking at project profitability, not as an absolute number that a project has to deliver, but on a margin basis, looking at cash coverage for your cash outflows over the next three months. So if your cash outflow expectation comes down, your cash coverage target comes down as well. Once you're sure you've got the right set of KPIs for the new world, you then need to think through your KPI processes. So all of these KPIs are, should be designed to help people make decisions, whether that's an individual or your leadership team or a subgroup of people. They need access to the information that enables them to make those decisions. And they probably need it more frequently than they've had before with the pace of change. So if you're going to have real control over what's happening in your business, you may need to adjust your metric processes so that you're surfacing the right information more frequently to the right people and making sure that it's accurate for, for the current world and useful. So I would have a, a real hard look at the metrics you're using to monitor the business and, and check that they're fit for purpose and you're monitoring them with the correct frequency now. So that's a set of things on the control side of the equation. On the flexibility side of the equation, again, winning work is a, is a key thing for flexibility. And Rob covered this last week in terms of talking about how you adjust your value proposition. Again, I'm not gonna go into that more today. I'm going to talk about two things that are, that are really related in terms of flexibility, and that's um, resourcing and managing cash. So again, managing cash is going to be critically important. And many of you will have business models where you have a high fixed cost base because you're employing people. Whether you're employing your entire delivery team or a majority of a delivery team, that is typically the largest fixed cost in a, in a consulting firm. As the world is changing and your client needs are changing, you may want to think about introducing a more flexible resourcing model. And I'll talk about that in a, in a moment. I'll also talk about a critical part of that, which is if you're having a more flexible resourcing model, the requirement for control of your delivery quality goes up and the clarity of your IP and your proposition goes up. So I'll talk about that as well. And then the final point I'm going to make is around managing talent and how the, the whole world of consulting talent and the, the things that people are looking for in their careers is changing and your business is also changing. So if you're not being flexible about the way that you manage your talent, you're likely to trip up over the next few months. So I'll just go into each of those in a little bit of detail as well. So first of all, flexible resourcing. The chart on the left is three actual examples from clients of ours where we, we run their finance uh, processes. One of them, an employed model where they, uh, they essentially have the vast majority of their delivery team are on payroll. The second is a hybrid model where they're about two-thirds employed and one-third associates, contractors. And the third is a almost pure contractor model where the only people on payroll are the, are the leadership team. As you can see, the yellow bars are the variable people costs. So unsurprisingly, if you have a contractor model, you have a much higher level of variable cost. And that allows these firms to adjust their cost base more, more effectively. It doesn't come without challenges. And I'm not going to get into whether which of these models is correct for your consulting firm right now. That's a whole different topic, which we could go into a huge amount of detail on. But there's a couple of points I want to make. So one is if, if you're in that employed model currently where you employ most of your staff, the furlough scheme is going to be unwinding. We've got to start contributing to it from August and it'll stop completely at the end of October. So if you're relying on that at the moment to, to give you some cost flexibility and, and reduce your costs, 
that's only going to last another few months. So you need to start planning now for what the world looks like, like beyond that. The second point, as I mentioned before, is client needs are changing. And it may be that your current team don't have the necessary skills and expertise for what your clients need right now. And it may be that you don't want to hire in people, you can't hire in people immediately to fix that. Getting a really good model for working with associates and working flexibly so that you can meet client needs effectively could be a really valuable investment right now. And the final point is over the next few months, there are going to be whole new pools of talent coming into the market. People who have found themselves in a consulting firm and and the sin of having joined in the last two years, so they're relatively cheap to let go, um, or just not quite fitting in that consulting firm, but they might be perfect for yours. A lot of those people will decide now is a great opportunity to start working as an associate. So there will be new talent pools available and you could, if you're not currently running with any kind of associate model, setting yourselves up so that you can be effective in tapping into those talent pools could again reap huge rewards. The watch out on all of this, as I've already mentioned, is delivery control is critical. So there's a couple of reasons for that. One is if you've got new or updated propositions that your team don't really know that well at the moment and or you're introducing a more flexible resourcing model, the risk in delivery goes up dramatically. So you will be making a bunch of promises to your clients, clients who are wrestling with massive issues themselves at the moment, and you've promised to deliver, particularly if you are as the leader of a firm, you've promised to deliver a whole bunch of value to those clients. If you're then reliant on a team, whether it's your in-house team or, or associates that don't quite understand the proposition properly, the risk in delivery goes up massively. So that means that having a really well-documented, flexible delivery toolkit is more critical than it's ever been. And the tool that I recommend for that is MethodGrid, started by a really experienced consultant, Don Morehouse, a couple of years ago. It's developing at a rate of knots, and it just allows you to codify your propositions in a really simple, easy format, bringing all of the necessary uh, information and context and tools and resources that your team may need to properly understand your proposition, but also manage delivery of it. So again, I said I was going to recommend some digital tools. MethodGrid is my, my second one. I should just note that I'm not in any way on uh, commission for either Float or, or Method Group. I just really like the tools. The final point I'm making on flexibility is around managing talent. So there have been, as I say, numerous changes in your business. You might have updated the ambition and strategy that you're working with. Individual people will have changed their priorities. Lots of us have reassessed what we want from our careers and our lives as a result of uh, the last few months. It's been a really dramatic change for a lot of people. And their role at your firm may therefore mean different things to them now than it used to. Your business may well have different needs. Your client needs have changed. The capabilities that you need, as we've talked about today, may well have changed. And you may be feeling ongoing cost and cash pressure. All of those things influence the way that you manage talent. So what might you need to do about that? So you might want to think about updating your employer brand. If you're going back to market and you're, you're trying to hire people, if you've completely changed your um, ambition and strategy and you're now focusing on different segments or doing different things, you need to think about the message that that gives to people. If you've changed the ways of working so that you're now a work-from-anywhere-first firm, you need to think about how that reflects in the market and you need to flex your employer brand accordingly. Individuals will have an increasing demand for a tailored employee value proposition that works for them, the set of benefits and things that they're getting from the firm in return for the commitment that they're making to you. People are increasingly going to want to be able to tailor that to their individual needs, which requires ongoing flexibility in how you set up your employee value proposition. 
you may need new ways, we talked about new ways to source talent, whether that's associates or other types of talent, and new ways to assess those people as being capable and fit for purpose for your business as, as your needs evolve and as the flexibility in your needs evolve. And you may want to look at flexible compensation models, particularly if you're, if you're going to be cash constrained and you want to keep your costs down. You may want to look at options where you increase proportions of bonus, introduce equity schemes, et cetera, so that you can give employees what they need, incentivize them appropriately, but also don't put your business under undue pressure. So there we go. It's just gone half past two. And I said I'd talk for, for 25 or 30 minutes and then we get into the Q&A. So I will stop there and we can take some questions. And we'll bring Nick and Rob back in. Brilliant. Thanks, Derry. So they're coming in. And the first one here, Derry, and I guess talks to what you were saying about the variable, um, the different models your clients have in terms of resource. What's your experience of using flexible resources? And I, I think this is particularly targeted at the junior end. So, and to the person who asked this question, I don't know if you want us to say your name, so please clarify if any of this is correct. But the questions I'm reading it is, for the more junior end of consulting, what's your view on, on getting sort of more of that associate type resource in for consultants or, or you know, as analyst level? Would you recommend that? Or, or would you say hire that as perm and hire your more senior resources associates? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I've got a couple of thoughts on that. And then, uh, Rob, I don't know, you might want to jump in as well. But Yeah, of course. So the way that it typically has worked to date is actually the market for flexible analysts has been really, really small. So there just aren't that many analysts out there um, in the interim market. And the ones that are are relatively expensive. So you might be for a, a consultant level candidate, you might be looking at somewhere between 800 and 1,000 pounds a day. And an analyst will be charging kind of five to six hundred pounds a day. So it feels relatively expensive to use analyst resource flexibly. And businesses like Eden McCallum, which have built their entire consulting operation on, on having pools of independence that they pull together, have actually recruited an analyst pool in, in-house. So historically, it hasn't really been an option to use analysts. I actually think that might well change over the next few months. So a lot of firms are going to shed their more junior resource because they're the cheapest to get rid of because they're under two years service. So there's no, there's no difficulty in making them redundant. So you might find that a, there's, a, there's an analyst pool that floods in. And if you can find good analysts, then it can be really helpful. In terms of like given a choice between an analyst or a, a consultant, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say one's better than the other. An, an analyst, if you can... If you can give a very specific set of tasks that they need to execute, then you probably have more control. And the more senior you go in terms of short-term flexible resource, the more risk that you're, you're embedding. And the other point I'll make, and then I'll let Rob speak, is uh, there's two different ways of using flexible resource. So one is you can actually bring them in as senior people and make them effectively kind of embedded as part of your team and treat them a bit like employees that just happen to be paid differently. That carries some IR35 challenges, that, uh, or it will do from May at least. But also, it makes it less flexible because you have more of a, a, a moral commitment to those people. So I would, I would definitely use consultants or analysts if, if they're the right talent that's available for you. Sorry, Rob, did you want to add a... Yeah, so I pick up from there, Derry? I mean, I think, first off, for me, it kind of depends slightly on the nature of your business and actually where you are in a kind of consulting sort of spectrum of the types of services that you're providing in terms of where you sit on that kind of model from you know, uh, completely employed through hybrid, through associate, and then where you might draw those associates from, you know, at, at any level in that organisation. I very much agree with what Jerry was saying that that actually, um, you know, the analyst and consultant, the kind of relatively entry grade into consulting, it, it, you know, are few and far between. 
you know, I have a personal preference. I think, you know, uh, I ran my own consultancy for six, seven years. We scaled that to about 80 staff, but we ran permanently with about kind of 20% associate. We ran the hybrid model to use the sort of terminology that, that Derry's done. And we tended to find that actually that, that hybrid model worked very well, actually for the sort of middle band consultants. So we tended to have our own analysts. We, we did have a strong pool of sort of senior consultants, but we tended to, that was the sort of much more kind of flexible component where we found that having the hybrid and the associate model worked very well. We tended to have very few associates at the kind of senior end. So I think it depends on the nature of services. I think it depends on, on the way you therefore deploy to your clients. But actually, you know, I, I would certainly have a reasonable level of sort of flexibility in my resourcing model. But I wouldn't, uh, from a personal point of view, think about having a completely flexible resourcing model. I, I think it, um, it then creates a series of other problems, which, uh, you know, uh, actually Derry's already kind of pointed to in terms of, um, you know, none of these are perfect, I suppose. But certainly access at that bottom end is, is very challenging. Brilliant. Thank you both. And so this is a question, is that it's a different attendee, but I think builds on this and Derry, what you were just talking about. So obviously you talked about scaling operations and the question following that flexible point is this person needs to grow their business for the reasons you've highlighted. And they're trying to decide between investing in someone in-house as an, you know, an operations manager to manage things like finance, marketing, HR, or do more of a flexible model, be that freelance or you know, an agency, I guess, like yourself. What's your advice or what should they be considering when making this decision? Uh, yeah, good question. That is something that a lot of people wrestle with and obviously a sort of conversation that I, I have quite frequently. So I think the number one thing for me is like going through that process of what are your critical capabilities. And I would define critical capabilities as the ones that either underpin your differentiation so give clients a reason to, to buy your services or they underpin your value delivery so that you can keep your promises to them. If you've identified the capabilities that are critical to those things, you're then left with a bunch of other stuff that has to get done because you're running a business, but isn't critical to that. So that's the kind of the first pool that I would say we should consider these for potentially outsourcing, whether that's to a freelancer or, a, or an agency. I then would say, okay, are there bits in there that are really helpful for the value proposition of our people that we want them to work on to feel ownership of to feel engaged in building the firm and i would try and keep those in-house um, and then finally i would ask are there proper technical skills and one thing that we run into all the time is we're a consulting firm we employ smart people they can just figure this out and the reality is in a lot of these areas whether that's finance or hr or marketing or it it's not worth them figuring it out and they can't figure it out and they should be doing client work and being a consultant and uh, i've personally fallen into that trap myself and it's just not worth it so if you've got stuff that is non-core to your business, that has technical requirements and is not something that you think is important for your team to be doing for their own development, then consider outsourcing it if you can find a suitable supplier, I would mm. say. Yeah, no, re really good advice. Rob, anything, I, I, I've got some thoughts just to, to build on that, but Rob, anything from your, you know, your experience, what's your, your take? I, I, no, I, I kind of, to a certain extent, reiterate what Jerry said. I, I think the key thing for me is you don't give away your decision points. You, know, you keep those kind of key decision points in-house and, and certainly my experience has been one where we have used you know partners to do a range of things so again if i refer back to my own company you know we had a finance partner we had an hr partner you know we didn't do those things ourselves uh, but actually we controlled the finance process we controlled the hr process you know we didn't give away the kind of decision points 
and I think that's important. But uh, you know, I agree they were non-core capabilities. You know, we didn't want our you know, resource pool to be learning on the job and, and developing those kind of technical skills that were you know non-essential for the delivery of our work to our clients. Uh, you know, we wanted to work with people that could do that quickly and efficiently for us. So you know, I very much um, very much support and reiterate uh, to extend what Derry said. No, brilliant. And, you know, I think I can only add from the marketing side, but I think Derry, you know, that, that's a key point around keeping doing what's core. And I think particularly in an industry like consulting, where for anyone on this call who's running a, a successful firm, you know, be it a boutique, be it a large firm, as a partner, you'll be billing yourself out at 2000 plus a day. And so the question has to be, is it more cost effective to get someone else to do it at less? And I think the other thing, and this I'll, I, I'd imagine is the same in your areas, Derry, but it is actually the hidden cost of managing an internal resource. Is unless you are bringing in someone who is senior and experienced and has all the skills you need, the management burden of junior resource, both in terms of directing them but also supporting them, can be significant. And I've seen, you know, very sadly, I've seen a number of cases where marketeers haven't worked out for that reason. You know, they've been hired in to be ahead of marketing when they're, you know, far too junior to do it, and it's not worked out well for any of them. And I think that's the last piece is understand the skills you need, you know, particularly in, in your world of HR and finance, there's a lot of skills and, and rarely do they sit within one person. So usually the decision isn't between one person and an agency, it's between an agency or, or a team of five and you need to decide what's right for you. But I, I don't know if that would uh, sort of is the same in, in your spaces as well. Yeah, it's absolutely the same. I've, I've seen probably four head of operations hired into boutique consulting firms in the last less than six months. And it all comes down to mismatch of expectations. So the leader of the firm thinks they've hired somebody to take all of the stress off their plate. And, uh, and the person they've hired just, is not just a completely unreasonable ask, to be honest. Um, and it's some really, really good people who've, uh, it's just not worked out, unfortunately. Yeah, no, com- completely. And so I guess we've got a couple of questions on broadly the same topics. So I'm going to try and consolidate a few questions here, Derry. And this is around IP. So one of our audiences asked for recommendations on capturing IP, and I'll let you pick that up around method grid. And then almost building on that, we have another question which is asked, how do you maintain IP, gather IP, and I guess secure IP if you are running a largely associate or flexible-based business model? Cool. Okay. Yeah. So if I take the, the first of those kind of the tools for capturing IP, so as I say, like method grid is my, is my go-to. I think the, the power of that is it enables you to not just capture like a case. So when I was at Bain, for example, we would have a case wrap-up process where you would have to document the final deliverable and save it onto a drive where it would be tagged and be searchable, which is fine. And maybe you'd put together a one or two page case study related to it as well, which would be documented and searchable on a bespoke drive that they, they built. I think what I've seen with MethodGrid, you know, we're moving kind of 10 years past my time at Bain, that tool is available, those types of tools are available and you can, you can attach those case studies directly into the main tool that you use to, to capture your methodology and to, to document that, that methodology and then also use that for delivery. So if you've got it all saved on your Google Drive or your, or your OneDrive or your SharePoint, you can link directly to those documents from there. You can also tag a whole bunch of external resources and you can actually have that documented in with the, the methodology and the process that you, that you follow. So that would be kind of my, that's my go-to tool for, for capturing IP. You do need a good process around it. And this actually comes to the, the second question about how you manage that with associates. It's difficult with associates. It's difficult with everybody. And it's a bit of a classic kind of carrot and stick approach needed because when you get to the end of a project, 
not many people naturally want to take whatever downtime they've got to systematically codify it. So you need to give them a good reason for doing that. And I found a combination of carrot and stick works for that. With associates, actually, it becomes a little bit simpler probably because you can just make it part of their contractual commitment to you and make it a requirement that they are documenting the IP. I think the key point there is that your IP should never be sitting in the heads of one or two individuals. If you're building equity value in your business, your IP is a huge part of your equity value. And one of the reasons that documenting this stuff is so important is because you then have that to, to prove to people about the, the depth of your knowledge and to reduce your reliance on individuals. So whether it's an associate or a senior partner or, or, or an analyst in your team or anybody else, they should be getting their thinking out on paper and, and into the document so that you have that captured and it's not just reliant on one or two individuals and that goes for associates as well and i would just say put it in the associates contract that at the end of a project they have to complete whatever your process is for codifying ip or they don't get paid yeah. Yeah, rob what, what would you say can on I, that? yeah can i just add to that again don't disagree with anything you said Derek, but i think a lot of people get to the end of a project we get case studies and everything you know go back in my career you know Everybody talked about the knowledge database and stuff like that. How do you capture and how do you manage that kind of knowledge asset? Because it is key to capital value and all of those sorts of things. You're absolutely right. I think one of the things I observe, though, is people not really understanding what IP is. And actually, it's a process by which you really understand what are actually the genuine differentiators that you've either taken into a project or created through a project that are those kind of leverage points that you do want to be able to capture. Because... Yeah, case study is great, but actually, ironically, sometimes it's got no IP in it whatsoever. You know, it, it's something we've done before or it's something that actually, sorry, without being too discriminatory, any Tom, Dick and Harry in the business can do kind of thing. You know, actually, though, there's a review process and I think a critical review process that's not just at the end of a project, it's ongoing through a project around the kind of assurance of your client delivery that is also key to kind of the identification of the IP and actually to start to codify the IP almost semi-independent of the project itself because that IP then becomes that kind of genuine, unique differentiator and a kind of reusable asset in its own right. You know, case studies are fantastic. Method grid's a great way of storing them, you know, but, and, and I think the but is, you know, we don't necessarily need a case study for everything we've done. Actually, we need case studies for the unique and differentiating things that we've done. We need to be able to identify those and we need to be able to identify what is unique and differentiating about them and be able to articulate that uh, probably slightly more succinctly than I'm articulating this answer. But there we go. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think there's no point just creating case studies for the sake of it. Absolutely not. They've either got an internal audience or an external audience with a very specific need and they should only be created if they're meeting that need in some way. No, completely. And I, 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 it's not to add to this because I'm conscious we'll talk about it Thursday, but the, the other often forgotten thing is that case studies don't have to be a written challenge approach solution. And actually very often a simple testimonial video, which can be quicker and, and easier for clients, is actually much more powerful. But we'll, we'll talk about that side on Thursday. So I guess bundling a couple of questions because um, we've got some themes here. And also apologies for anyone where we don't get to your question because I'm mindful we've got a lot of questions We've actually, we're, we're towards running out of time. If we don't answer your question on this, we'll follow up the relevant person, be it Derry, Rob, or myself, will follow up after this. So the, the question, and this feeds a little bit to, Rob, I think what you were saying in your webinar and, and built on here is, firstly, do you see a wave of consolidation coming in the consulting sector? And then, if yes, 
for anyone listening who runs a, a, a boutique firm where that's an aspiration or an option, you know, what are we, particularly on today's topic around operations, what should they be doing to get themselves as ready and as attractive yeah, for a buyer as possible? Yeah, yeah. So let, let's kind of answer the first part first, as it were. Do, do I see a kind of wave coming? Uh, good question. What I see happening at the moment is lots of people looking at options and thinking about consolidation as part of that kind of either whether it's part of how do you uh, extend that flexible resourcing model that Derry's talked about or whether it's part of you know how do you refresh your value proposition I see people in the market you know looking at other sometimes partners sometimes kind of competitors but you know people you know across the, the sector and considering them in that way will we see a kind of wave of consolidation uh, I think we've got one or two other things going on in the market that are perhaps semi-independent of what we're seeing as a result of COVID-19. Yeah, we shouldn't forget actually in the background of all of this, we've had a series of reviews of the big four in terms of the relationship of the big four audit and consulting propositions. And you know, sitting behind where we are in the market at the moment, there is a question about whether we're going to see some form of breakup or divestment of kind of consulting proposition you know, from the big four, as we saw in the kind of early 2000s. For different reasons actually probably not that different reasons similar reasons but probably different destinations in terms of what will happen and i think that's a bit of a backdrop to this and we therefore will need to think about what we see in terms of kind of consolidation but certainly i see kind of mid-tier firms looking at you know what i would probably euphemistically refer to as kind of bolt-on acquisitions that extend their organization i mean having been a major acquirer of businesses in my kind of tenure at tribal we bought uh, over 10 years, we bought about 50 companies. But actually, while I was chief exec, we certainly bought four or five. And they were mainly, ironically, in Australia. We bought those businesses for different reasons. And maybe if I just quickly articulate those reasons, that will give people a sense of why a kind of bolt-on is an interesting thing to do. So actually, I'm going to refer to three particular co companies, not by name. But we bought one company because it was about access to market. Actually, we were, we were not terribly interested in their tool set, if I'm honest. But we were interested in the market position that they occupied. And we wanted to be working with those clients and it was an access to market. We bought another company because it was about access to actually IP. It, it was about access to a kind of proposition that we knew that we could develop, but it would take us longer to develop. And actually there was an opportunity for us to acquire a unique, I mean, it was tech, but a unique kind of piece of tech IP. The third option actually was related to the first, but, but, but actually subtly different, which was about a market entry. So in the first instance, we bought a company because we actually wanted to kind of deepen our penetration into a market where we were already. And we actually took out effectively our major competitor. In the last instance, we bought a firm that was for complete new market entry. So I would start to think about them. What would make you attractive in that way? And where would you position yourself to a potential acquirer from that point of view? The operations question, I'll just kind of cover really quickly because I'm very conscious of time. I mean, I think the key thing in operations is about access to high quality information you're going to be taken more seriously. You're going to improve actually probably the kind of understanding that, that the potential acquirer has of your, of your business and therefore their perspective on, the, on your business. If you've got almost a kind of ready-made access to, to kind of core base information that people would expect to find. So, you know, actually, if you think about it in kind of categories, you know, how accessible is all of your finance information? 
Do you have monthly management accounts that could be easily furnished to somebody? And you know, do those management accounts provide you with a good articulation of what's happening in the business beyond the kind of base level P&L? So what level of analysis do you have in them at that level? What level of information do you hold? Almost back to the IP question about your customers, the contracts you have with them. You know, people are looking for longevity. They're looking for repeat business. How do you not just present a case study, but how do you present a sort of synopsis in that kind of way? And thirdly, you know, similarly about your people, you know, actually, you know, a, a kind of not just a kind of who they are, but actually kind of what they bring, you know, the 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 way you have valued them in the in the organization and kind of the the level of kind of um, I was going to use the word importance. I'm not quite sure that's the right word. That's value laden with other stuff. But the level of kind of significance that those individuals have in terms of not just how you've got to where you are, but actually kind of where you go to for the next stage. And, you know, when looking at employees in the acquisition phase, you're actually looking at the next generation of management that are going to deliver the next generation of growth, not just the current generation. Apologies, that's been a really long answer. So, um, I, Derry, I should hand over to you. No, that's fine. I, and I agree with all of that. I think the only thing I was going to do just to build on the point around wave of consolidation is what we're increasingly seeing is the bigger firms, where they want to extend their capabilities, are partnering with specialists first. So actually, if it is your goal to get acquired, or even if it's not, if it's just a route to market, making yourself available and aligning your operations such that they can work with you as a specialist provider of certain skills is a really good way of partnering with some of the bigger firms. So that's all I was going to add. I, really, yeah. I think we've probably got time for one more question, have we not? I think so. I'm conscious there's a number to pick from. Are there any on there, Derry, that jump out to you that you think, yeah, I really want to cover that? I think the question about, about offices... So there's the question here that is, uh, what are your thoughts about offices? We used to have an office. Now I feel most work can be done much better from home. My staff disagree, but we're thinking about a more flexible approach. So should we meet in the office a few few days a week, et cetera? What will clients make of that? It's interesting. I mean, it's one I'm wrestling with as well, actually, at the moment with my team. So I think we need to be really careful about making these kind of decisions right now. So the the world of remote working that we've been in for the last couple of months is not the normal world of remote working. So when people are locked down at home, it's kind of binary as to whether you've got children or not. And if you're locked down at home without children, then your productivity has probably been pretty high. That may not continue when, when lockdown eases. Can most consulting work be done not in the office? Uh, yes, probably. But I do think it's really important to, to get the team together face-to-face to exchange ideas and energy and things as well. In terms of what clients think of it, I don't think clients care whether you've got an office or not. They might want you on site or they might be happy if you're remote, but they don't care whether you're in the office or not, unless it affects the quality of your support for them, I would say. Can I just add to that? I mean, certainly, again, I refer back to my own company when we, we had, even 10 years ago, a fairly flexible model in terms of where people worked, client site, home, the office. We did, though, kind of very much encourage and, and sort of almost quasi-mandate that people came into the office on a reasonably regular basis. And largely that was about the kind of culture and values of the organization and creating a kind of homogeneity around the organization. And so the organization felt like one organization where actually I do think that one of the challenges we have in kind of complete remote working, and I currently chair an organization that is completely remote, is around that kind of culture and values. Now, we work hard at it in terms of the tools that we deploy. So, you know, we use things like Slack as a kind of medium for kind of regular comms daily. And there are various channels on it, some of which are lighter and more humorous than others. But actually you do have to kind of work at how you replace the kind of informal social contact that people have in an office environment 
that is is critical in my opinion to kind of building that kind of culture and values of the organization and whether that's you say well actually you know we do have you know company meetings team meetings we do have certain days of the week where we expect to see people in an office or whatever there are various ways of doing it and obviously technology is so much better but but actually you do have to work at it in a way that is different to a um, presenteeism system which you know, probably we all grew up with i certainly grew up with and wouldn't want to go back to but recognize that there are some critical components of that that do add value to the business Right. I'm very conscious of time. So I think we should draw a line there. I know there are a few questions that we haven't yet got to. So we'll, we'll get back, back to you, those individuals uh, directly. Apologies for not having, having time to cover them all. A lot of questions in the end. So thank you for that. And thank you all for your engagement. We will send around the link to the recording so you can, you can watch back. And I would really strongly encourage all of you to sign up for Thursday's webinar with Nick, particularly if you're starting to think about revenue growth again, uh, everything that he, all of his expertise around generating true ROI from your marketing activity is invaluable at the moment. So we'll send that link around as well so that you can register if you haven't yet. And thank you all and have a, have a fantastic rest of the day. Thanks a lot, Derry. Thanks, Derry. Thank you, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.